Good morning, Hope Church. Thanks for joining us. I want to again extend an invitation to those of you who are able, especially as you're getting vaccinated, Lord willing, uh, and, and feeling safer with the increased vaccination in our community to come back, gather with us. We miss you. Uh, as, as you will be hearing and, or have heard, we are beginning programming during a, the middle sandwich of the sandwich structure, so during the growth hour from our children all the way to our adults. Not the full programming, not every detail, but we're offering two adult classes. We're all offering some children's classes. That starts the Sunday after Easter. So I just encourage you to come back as the Lord commands all of us to with the body of Christ. We last week began 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in those first 13 verses, even though we only covered the, the first verse, but in these 13 verses, uh, it describes the offices of the church. And so last week I gave this summary of the two offices of the church, the office of pastor, elder, and the office of deacon. And this week we specifically look at verses 2 through 7, which talk about the pastor, the office of pastor, elder. Let me pray and, and ask the Lord to minister to us through his word. Father, help us to hear you. Help us to rightly understand uh, the topics about which you speak and the impact they have on our lives and how our church should be functioning. Help us, even those who maybe aren't serving in the office of pastor elder, just as members see the seriousness with which they've been called for the selection and election of the officers and to support them and even submit to them as part of their submission to the Lord. Father, we want to be biblical and think biblically about everything. Help us in this way as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that transitional word, therefore, in verse 2, sets us up for what Paul is teaching Pastor Timothy and his church, and obviously through this inspired canonical word, what he's teaching us. The therefore lets us know that now that noble task about which he was speaking is going to get some explanation. The serious nature needs to be explained. And then you see that word, an overseer, or again, I'm using the category of pastor elder. You'll hear me say that, but that's all the same topic, all the same synonymous idea. Overseer, pastor, elder, they're all referring to the same office. Therefore, an overseer or pastor elder, it says, must be, and then it lists various traits. These are required qualifications. They are necessary traits of a person. So if you look at verses 2 and 3, you actually see that there are 11 qualifications given. Seven of them are positive. So seven of them, seven of them are actual qualifications for a pastor elder. And four of them are disqualifications. That God has given the church requirements in verses 2 through 3 regarding the personal character of the pastor elder. And I, I just want to walk through those with us. See, hear what he's saying. The, the, the first is this, that the pastor elder must be above reproach. It's not talking about sinless perfection. We're not a bunch of Jesuses in this office. But something that could be described as stellar character and free from obvious or questionable flaws in our character. I, may, I might even, before I even go any further, summarize it this way. These are, this is not a job description. This is not a written out job description with clearly defined roles, clearly defined responsibilities or expectations. Think of it like an inner office memo. 
These are terse descriptions, just abbreviated, and they're often they're given in rapid fire. They're just boom, 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 quick. The traits are abbreviated, and they're representative. So even this first one, above reproach, I mean, we wouldn't be able to put too much body weight on that. We would just simply be able to say that uh, regarding somebody qualified for the office of pastor or other, elder, there are no glaring, obvious character concerns. But if there is, as we'll see later, a love of money, somebody who is selfish and greedy, somebody who likes power, somebody who deals heavily with pride, somebody who's got other traits that are dangerous. These are the kind of things that should be a red flag that would cause us to look, to, to look a little bit closer, to wait, to see more maturity, or simply to say, not that person. So don't think of these traits as uh, a formal job description. Think of them as an inner office memo, terse descriptions, abbreviated and representative, yet not random. They reflect a kind of quality and depth that belong to such a man. Above reproach. A general, abbreviated, representative, but significant. Second, husband of one wife. This obviously reflects the, the command in, from chapter 2 that it be a male. We wrestled with those difficult verses in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And it reflects that here. To say, though, that the person must be married to be an, a pastor elder is an overreach. It would be overreading the text. There's no requirement that they be married at all. It just simply means that if they are unmarried, then they are celibate, that they are honoring God's design for sexuality and for the nature of the marital covenant. They, 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 they know God's design and they live that out. They live that out whether they're unmarried or married. There can be questions regarding what about a situation of divorce? Like, What about a pastor elder where a situation with divorce? And again, with these terse, abbreviated statements, we don't get a lot of detail. And sometimes churches can put almost too much body weight, so to speak, on any one phrase. We would have to just simply say, like we do with the rest of, of, of God's messages in his word, is let the rest of scripture explain this part. If, there's, if there is an inappropriate divorce, if, if it's not the kind of divorce that God allows, if it breaks the marital covenant in ways that are not permitted by God's word, then that person would be disqualified. But that isn't to say that, that, a, that, that, a, that a spouse, a wife, broke the marriage covenant, freeing the man from his covenant responsibilities that he couldn't necessarily be remarried. It's not saying that. It's somebody who takes seriously the covenant of marriage. The way that looks thereafter needs to be examined by the situation and by the rest of Scripture. But it ultimately would be a person who would be taking serious the covenant of marriage and in his marriage be loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And we'll see more of that in a few minutes. The third qualification is sober-minded. It could be described as this, someone who takes the office and church ministry seriously rather than flippantly. Someone who's focused, sober-minded, means they're not just kind of woozy and whatever. It'll all get along. They, they take it seriously. It matters. They're focused on their task. They see the seriousness of being an embassy of the kingdom. They see the seriousness of shepherding the flock of Christ. They feel the burden and the weight of the needs of our people. They are burdened 
to let more people in our community know about Jesus Christ and to not only share that special grace message, but to display common grace love to those around. The fourth qualification is self-controlled. It means their appetites are controlled. Appetites in the sense of their longings, their desires. It also can mean something like their thoughts are gathered. They're not flighty. They're not unstable. They're able to make decisions. Again, the word is loose, more loosely defined. It gets used in a lot of different ways. So it could also be in the sense of kind of you just see their life has a level of structure and discipline. But it also means that they're able to focus. They're able to make good decisions. Last night, the elders, literally, I'm recording this on a Wednesday, uh, two Tuesdays a month, the pastor elders in Hope Evangelical Free Church do our gathering. And we, we met from 6.30 till 10 p.m. last night. So less this 12 hours ago, from when I'm recording this right now, we were still meeting. And in those meetings, we're making hard decisions. We're dealing with weighty issues facing individuals or families. We're trying to make decisions, especially in this COVID season, that is balancing all of the issues that need to be taken into account, doing so biblically, but lovingly and graciously. It requires somebody who is able to make decisions, weigh the evidence, listen to others as discussions happen, come to a conclusion. See, that's the kind of trait that we need. It can't be somebody with a, a, such a strong opinion or, or in, unable to listen to another side or to weigh the evidence or the, or the situation. They've got to be able to enter in and have a level of control over their thinking and ultimately their lives. Uh, the fifth qualification listed, again, all of these are in verse Two, the fifth qualification is that they're respectable. This means that they have characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration and delight. They are held in high regard. Please note, this is the opposite of celebrity or well-knownness. There's that famous book written decades ago called The Image. I mean, I, I was reading it recently and was struck by how so dated in regard to the reality of our days, how it speaks right into our own cultural moment, as if it was like prophetic in that sense. And it, it, a famous line from that book, uh, The Image, it says, uh, people are well-known for their well-knownness, meaning they're actually not accomplishing anything great. They're just simply well-known. That's not what is described here. It's the opposite of celebrity, but not dull or boorish. They're viewed as faithful. They're viewed as mature Christians. People see them as respectable. The sixth qualification is they're hospitable. Again, when you think of Christian hospitality, don't think entertainment. Just the people we already know and love. Think of people who have concern and sacrificial care for others, both Christians and outsiders. They are willing to sacrifice, care for those they don't even know at cost to themselves. Not just fun with their already established friends, but they show a level of extending the common grace resources that they have with other Christians and even those on the outside. The last statement, and this one has raised a considerable discussion over the years in churches. The last and seventh qualification, verse 2, gives is that they're able to teach. I think the sense of it is simply they're able to handle Scripture. They can teach sound doctrine and refute error. This is not saying that they necessarily are the best lecturers. 
doesn't mean that they're all seminary professors or teachers in a classroom. We've got very gifted teachers in this church. It doesn't mean they're necessarily doctrinally able to handle Scripture as qualified by an elder. It doesn't even mean that every elder has the gift of teaching. Right? So clearly there's going to be some elders, oftentimes staff pastor elders, that are regularly preaching and teaching as even I am doing right now. Teaching this coming fall semester a class at, at Trinity. Those kind of things befit a gift of teaching, right? And, and experience in lecturing. That's not what every pastor elder is assigned to do. Simply able to teach means this, that they can determine truth from God's word and disciple others in it. So it might even be that they can help the, the office of pastor elder make the biblically minded decisions we need to make. They can think biblically about things and they can help guide people into biblical truth and living the biblical life. Now when you get to verse 3, you find that God has not only given the church qualifications of personal character for the office of pastor elder, seven of them, but actually in verse 3, Paul gives four disqualifications for the office of pastor elder. The first is, the ESV translates, it's not a drunkard. Maybe the better translation would be something like this. Not someone given to drunkenness. We just need to know that alcohol is a peril for any serious disciple of Jesus Christ. And literally, our church has tasted that reality in, in, in people in our congregation who have wrestled with alcohol. And it just cannot be something that is, that is, that is part of the office of pastor elder. Paul is the first negation, the first disqualification. A, a second disqualification, uh, verse 3 says, is not violent. Again, the contrast Paul actually gives. Not violent, but gentle. Violence stems from anger, pride. Gentleness flows from mercy and love. Now, don't hear this as weakness. Don't hear this as somebody who's a pushover. Think of, some, think of a person who is not quick-tempered. That's very much strength. It's just restrained. That strength applied with love and mercy. They're even-handed. They're measured. That's, there's a lot of power in that. It's just not violent. It's not uncontrolled. You'll, you'll notice that for all of these disqualification, there's a lack of control. It's a lack of control with the substance, alcohol. It's a lack of control uh, with, with anger, violence. There's a lack of control that is disqualifying. The third disqualification is quarrelsome. While Paul doesn't give a contrast, maybe the contrast would be somebody who is peaceable. They're not polemical. They're not looking for a fight. They're not acting with angst. They're not bogged down in controversy. Brothers and sisters, we saw very difficult season the last few months in our current political climate. And, and it, was, it was a test case to see how Christians could live with wisdom and, and, and fortitude and grace when literally the cultural climate was forcing you to take sides and, and believe outlandish theories and conspiracies about what is true and what is right. And again, it's not, it's not taken not taken by the angst, the fear-mongering, or control. It's peaceable. The last, it's not a lover of money. The, the, the pastor elder cannot be a lover of money. The contrast, of course, is sacrifice. 
and generosity. Greed is inconsistent with zeal for God, and it is personally destructive. And we have seen that. We have seen that destruction in the lives of ministries, even in the greater Chicago area. And those kind of things cannot be in the office of pastor elder. Interestingly, when you look to verses 4 and 5, here Paul gives another point that we can kind of gather. It's this. God expects the qualities of a pastor elder to be reflected in a, in a man's family life. You can't see it in the English in verse 4, but literally the Greek of verse 4 starts with the phrase, his own house. And in a sense, Paul is saying in verse 5, if, if, a, if a man can't care for his own house, how can he care for God's house? If a man can't care for his own children, how can he be made responsible to care for God's children? That's the logic of verse 5. And verse 4 gives more details. It says he must manage his own household well. By that Paul is saying he must reflect both supervision and protection. Now we need to be careful with this because I think we've adopted in our modern American view of a male leadership as power and authority. I think the model is both Christ and even God the Father. Manage here should probably be taken as loving and sacrificial oversight, not tyrannical rule. Even the phrase submissive children can feel a bit harsh. It can almost make some say, get your kids in line. Have you seen the father that gets the kids in line with scary commands and a loud voice? Does that shape the heart? I think the language of submissive children is not actually speaking as much to the father's, but ultimately is echoing the fifth commandment about honoring parents. We should be, they, a pastor elder should be able to raise up their children to be disciples of Jesus. And that often happens not by being hard and fast, but by displaying fatherly love, by having affection with structure that is blended so beautifully that there is a wise approach to what it means to be a dad, what it means to love your wife. We have to be careful with this, and many churches have struggled because it is common for an adult child, from the teenage years on, for an adult or teenage child of a pastor elder to walk away from the Lord. And I think we would make a mistake if we draw a hard and fast line. Remember, this is not a job description per se. This is, this is an inner office memo. This is abbreviated and representative, meaning we can't remove the fact that ultimately a parent doesn't save their kids God saves the kids. A parent can't woo the children. The Spirit must woo the children. It literally is the gracious work of God. And I believe that so strongly that even when my kids were very, very little, I remember putting them down, their little blankies over them in their crib, putting my hand, which covered their entire chest cavity, praying over their little bodies that God would Draw them to himself. I prayed that from the first day they were born, knowing full well that their mother and I could only do so much. The sisters of Lazarus loved him. And if they could, could have, would have willed him out of the grave. But it was only when Jesus called and says, Lazarus, come out, that he moved. 
That is is an important theological truth that the Bible teaches. I think that must be in play here. Like with with a a husband of one wife, the, the rest of Scripture needs to help explain the nuances and applications of this text. Ultimately, then, verse 4 should be saying, not a rigid authoritarian parenting, but but parenting that reflects the love and gentleness of the Father. In fact, the phrase, with all dignity, in verse 4, emphasizes this. It's saying that a father should be drawing children, not repelling them. They should see the love and sacrifice of their earthly dad who has so clearly made the point that all of that is to the glory and because of the love of the Heavenly Father. The home is an ideal ground for developing and verifying a pastor-elder. Essentials for caring for the bride of Christ are first exhibited with a man's own bride and children. This is, this is why the, the marriage covenant becomes important. This is why a, a wife can be a l- wonderful litmus test to see where is the sober-minded, self-controlled, above-reproach, hospitable, respectable, not drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. If we can do it, if a pastor and elder can do it day in and day out, only then are they worthy to do so in the house of God. This isn't, again, asking for perfection. Otherwise, no church would have a pastor elder. But it also is saying that there shouldn't be glaring absence from these characteristics. Why? Because the gospel and the reputation of Christ are at stake. The last two verses are important. I summarize them by saying this. Paul makes two more statements, but they ultimately say this. God expects a pastor elder to have a Christian life and practice that has taken root. And he explains that in two ways. First, in verse 6, he makes clear they should not be a new believer. New believers are quite simply untested. They're unsuited for the office. Why? Paul gives the reason. Because pride may swell up. And that puts them at serious spiritual risk. Jonathan Edwards warned a pastor in American history from a couple hundred years ago. He warned that pride is a horrible evil. And he even said this, it often masks itself as religiosity and righteousness. He's so right. Some of the most fervent, ardent people and their their kind of religious devotion to this or that are really just swelling movements of pride in their own life. So God warns us, that it must be a tested believer. Again, this is, this is abbreviated, representative. It doesn't say they've got to be a Christian for five years or they've got to be a Christian for 10 years. None of that is given. We would have to use wisdom to say, when has somebody moved beyond being a new convert? Or when have they been tested enough to know that this person is now ready for the office of pastor elder? The, the, the last, and this is verse seven, the last qualification regarding the, the rootedness of this person is this, that they must have a good reputation outside the church and in the community. The church ultimately, Paul is saying, has a public reputation to uphold. They're serving as an embassy of the kingdom in the community. Why? Why would this be a concern? Because if, if this believer has a bad reputation, then it hurts the reputation of the church. It hurts the reputation of Christ. 
And ultimately, it hinders the church's mission and ministry in the community. That would be why when there are pastors or elders who fail to meet these qualifications or do something that is disqualifying, churches make huge mistakes when they don't act. I think think of churches in the Chicago area, one with, with inappropriate physical activities, uh, an unfaithful in a sense, husband of one wife, and others regarding greed, lover of money, both in the Chicago area, both well-known names you're probably thinking of as I uh, failed to speak them. And in both of those cases, an argument could be made that their churches, the rest of the elder board, failed to hold them accountable because of their power, their influence maybe, their fame, uh, their own cowardice as leaders. And it doesn't mean that a selection of a pastor elder will always be perfect or that a, a, a brother in Christ won't down the road fail in a certain way. That would make them disqualifiable and the church should act on that for the sake of the church, for the sake of Christ, for the good of that man who is first and foremost not a pastor elder but a disciple of Jesus. Let me just give you three final thoughts by way of application that I think apply to, to all of us. First is this. I think this text would exhort us to pray for our pastors and elders. They serve you. They officially represent Christ on your behalf, and they are massive targets of the evil one. What is striking, if you look at verses 6 and 7, is that twice Paul mentions the devil. They could fall into condemnation of the devil or into the snare of the devil. Like there's a real spiritual battle and you can guarantee that the evil one would love to annihilate a church by taking out its primary representatives, the, the, the faces or the, the ones that are supposed to be held up as examples and as leaders to be wiped out. Pray for your pastor elders. Note that. Pray for them. Here's a second. Not just praying for them. Respect your pastor elders. And I, I don't try to say that in a self-serving way because I serve in the office by your election. Not at all. The office of pastor elder is established by God with a sacred authority and responsibility. You are commanded to do what Hebrews 13, 17 says. Let me read it to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Meaning the pastor elders will have to give an account for their care of you. And Paul, or sorry, the author of Hebrews adds this at the, at the end of verse 17 in Hebrews 13. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Like, don't make more burdensome the task of your pastor elders. And I feel like I'm able to say this without reservation, even as an office holder, because I speak what God's word says. Pray for your pastor elders. Respect your pastor elders. And finally, an application that might be more narrowly focused would be this. If any of you men aspire to be a pastor elder, let this text direct your aspirations. It's a noble task, verse 1. It's a massive undertaking, verses 2 through 7. It's a sacred and important ministry. Don't think, though, CEO. Don't think posh appointment. 
If you were with us last week, I described it in two words. Think crying and dying. Picture a man who seeks to reflect and model the sacrificial love and mercy of Christ. That's a pastor elder. Picture a shepherd, except he's one of the sheep. He's one of the sheep. He just stands on the heap of hay, making sure everybody is seen and gets well-fed, giving of his own supply. Simply one of the disciples of the chief shepherd himself. Brothers and sisters, my hope is that we would be a church aligning ourselves to the ministry structure prescribed for us in God's word. And I pray that this message guides us continually along that path to be faithful in that regard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray for our pastor elders. I pray you'd help them to be faithful. Help them to be pure of heart. Help them to have the characteristics and, the, and, and to not have the disqualifications that you prescribe. Help them to model this in their own homes. Help their, protect their children and their, their wives. And protect this body, Father, from the, the arrows of the evil one. Thank you for the shepherds that you've given, some long-standing men who love and sacrificially serve in this body. And thank you for Jesus, our chief shepherd, in whose name we pray. Amen.